how we have the system today, the political parties have more power than the voter. I'm Shane Corey, and this is episode five of Independent Citizen. In this episode, I wanted to go back to the theme of the show, the overall theme of the show, which is uh, Washington's farewell address. And he spoke of the baneful effects of the spirit of the party. Back when Washington was serving as a pr- first president, we didn't have political parties yet. We had what developed as the anti-administration and the pro-administration. So it was factions. Um, and they, they had, when when they referred to anti or pro-administration, it wasn't even about George Washington. It was about Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of the Treasury at the time, and opposing his policies. And I think in the first Congress, actually in the first Congress, uh, the political parties didn't exist. By the second Congress, they emerged. Washington had the anti-administration faction and the pro-administration faction, uh, again, based upon their opposition or support for Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of the Treasury. The anti-administration faction broke off, and by the second Congress, formed the Democrat-Republican Party, which was one of the first political parties. And the um, pro-administration broke off, let's say pro-establishment faction broke off and and formed the National Republican Party. Not the National Republican Party that exists today, which is the Republican National Committee, uh, but the first form of it, which really didn't last that long. It lasted about 10 years. And then they split off and you had um, both factions uh, get broken off into the Whigs. The Whigs eventually became what is the Republican Party today. So in essence, the origins of both the modern day Democrat Party and the Republican Party form from the same group of people, just differing factions, which makes kind of sense. But the whole reason why Washington, George Washington, committed so much time in his farewell address to warning us about those baneful effects of the spirit of the party, which is really, uh, when he refers to spirit of the party, he's talking about the the negative effects of blindly following a group, a faction, in this case, a political party. Think of it in terms of sports. You have your, um, you, you know, uh, with a Super Bowl, for instance, or NFL, basketball, baseball, you have your supporters of the team, typically based upon geography. Not necessarily the case anymore. Um, you have Patriots fans all over the place. You have Buccaneers fans all over the place. But you have your Fairweather fans that is based upon performance. And you have your diehard fans that regardless of what happens, they're always going to support the Redskins or whomever. Um, so think of it in those terms, but in a way that affects our everyday life and the passion that goes beyond that. It's um, So whenever you have those that spirit ignited, typically it's not a good thing. Um, it, it, it ends in, as, as Washington warned, uh, occasional riot and insurrection, which we've seen. So in, in this episode, I wanted to really dive into what America's history with uh, independence is. So with, with those who've been elected as an independent, not independence, um, those who've actually bucked the party system, gone into elected office without the support of a political party, without their ballot line, literally running for office and winning uh, free from any party affiliation. And if you, you go back, aside from that very first Congress, throughout our history, 
going back to the second Congress on, the number of United States senators that have been elected to office as an independent, how many do you think over the few hundred years? Six. Six. That's it. In the House of Representatives, we've had nine Americans that have ever been elected to office as independents. And I just want to briefly go down the list because you'll kind of see the pattern here. For the Senate, you had David Davis, 1877-1883, one term. George Norris, one term. John Miller, same thing, one term. Harry Byrd um, actually did two terms as an independent, was first elected uh, with a party, and that was in the 70s, 1970 to 83. And then you have two actually sitting senators that are in Congress today that were elected as independents. You have Bernie Sanders and you have Angus King. Most people have heard of Bernie, not Angus King. Angus King is known, he's a senator from Maine, and he's known as the ideological center of the Senate. He votes, he voted with uh, the Trump administration, I believe, 38% of the time, uh, voted with Democrats maybe 43% of the time. And he, he um, was able to address each issue based on its own merit rather than what the party whip would tell him to do. And that's exactly kind of what happens when you're elected to office is uh, you are figuratively whipped into submission for every single vote that occurs. Uh, the party will come down and say, you have to vote yay or nay on this issue. This is how the party's going to vote. If you deviate from that, we want to talk to you about it. We want to see how we can uh, change your vote to match the party line. And majority of the votes today, I would not necessarily the majority, but many votes that occur today happen without debate because it is known it's going to be a party line decision. So they skip the debate altogether, go straight to a vote, and you have a partisan line that's drawn that doesn't serve the American people. It is simply uh, a partisan interest. So um, it, it's, uh, and I'll get into, uh, dig a little bit further into that in a minute. But in Congress, again, uh, the history there in the uh, altogether throughout history, nine members of Congress have been elected to office as independents. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven of those were all in the late 1800s. And they all served, except for Emory Spear, one term in office. Emory Spear served two terms. There's a reason for that. Uh, in 1913, you had Bill Kent serve two terms. And then again, you have a familiar name, Bernie Sanders, was elected to Congress as an independent. So throughout our history, we have 535 members of Congress between House and the Senate. Uh, and of course, that number has dwindled as population, as popula it's gone up as a population in the United States has grown. But throughout history, we literally have 15 people that were elected to office without the assistance of the party. Pretty pathetic. Before we get into the reasons why we've had so few independents elected to office, let's talk about the benefits. Why is it better for you as a voter to have your representative serving you rather than party? Well, it's kind of obvious there. Um, if you take a look at even Bernie Sanders, love him or hate him, or really not care about him. He gets elected every campaign without the support of the party. 
that frees him to do whatever the heck he wants. Same with Angus King. Angus King can vote with the Republicans one day, Democrats next, or vote to vote. That's how it should be. When people are elected to office, they're elected to represent you, the voter. They're not elected to represent the party. Now, we've, got it, we've gotten it twisted over the years in that we assume that if they're representing the party, they're representing me, and that's not the case. Take a look at, if you're a Republican, take a look at Obamacare. Republicans were in power for a significant number of years under Paul Ryan. They ran for office, raised hundreds of millions of dollars saying they're going to get rid of Obamacare. They're going to take that burden off, off the, the budget, off the taxpayer, get insurance costs back to a reasonable level. Never happened. Never happened. It's because they were in bed with both the insurance industry and the medical industry and a few other industries as well, which were just booming because of the benefits from Obamacare. And if they were to mess with those industries, they were going to mess with their political donations and their influence. That's why that didn't happen. That was a party decision because those industries would have pulled support across the board for all Republicans and the party and all their different committees. So rather than below that support, they decided, eh, let's just play a game with it. And that went on for years and years and years and years and years. That's just one example. This happens on nearly every single issue out there. Whenever the party is involved, they're representing the interests of their own survival, their own expansion, rather than the interests of an individual constituent or a group of constituents. It's, it's obvious. And um, whenever a politician is elected with party resources, they have no choice but to fall in line. If you don't fall in line, many things happen. You don't just lose campaign dollars. You don't lose financial support. You run the risk of being redistricted. If they see you as a threat to their, um, their votes, their share of power, they will literally redraw the lines and Democrats and Republicans will work together to get rid of independent and totally get rid of you. So there's, um, so many different things going on that, that enables the party to kind of control the votes and drive out an independent. And that's why of all those names I've listed, what 90% of them only served one term. They got in and then they were pushed out. They, they, they didn't switch parties. They literally could not win again. So, you know, that's, that's, um, uh, a telling story if you look into the specifics of every case there. But that's uh, something we can get down to uh, and drill down to in other shows. Now, let's talk about why independents can't get elected. I'm familiar with this. I ran the, the Libertarian National Party for four years as their executive director during my Don Quixote days, where I was my hair was on fire to change things. I had the opportunity to do it through the nation's third largest political party, and um, I gave it a shot. And it was um, educational, but very frustrating. And that the hurdles that are put in place of both independents and third party candidates are extraordinary. So the number one reason why, excuse me, yeah, let's, I, I wouldn't say it's the number one reason, but it's a starting point of why we don't have independents or, or actually no modern third party candidates have been ever been elected. So from the Libertarian National Committee, there's never been a Libertarian elected to Congress with a Libertarian National Committee. 
Green Party, same thing. Reason for that is what's called ballot access laws. So every state has the ability to control their own rules on who will appear on the, on the state ballot. Some make it extraordinarily difficult to get on the ballot. Others like Florida, you can have um, fairly easy access if you just pay a small filing fee. Um, others like the state of Oklahoma, it is you have to go and petition within a short window, collect a ton of signatures within your district only, wherever you're running. And I believe the rule at least used to be, they may have changed it, but you had to use petitioners only from those districts as well. So you couldn't hire outside help, which made it nearly impossible to get on the ballot. And if you didn't um, make it onto the ballot, you think, oh, well, I'll just do a write-in campaign. In Oklahoma, nope, can't do a write-in campaign. So typically, when you when Oklahoma voters go to the ballot box, they have a choice between a Republican or a Democrat, or they can go the hell home because you can't even write in a candidate in that state. So it's across the board. It's just a mishmash of all these different rules. And in the end, um, an independent or third-party candidate has to spend an enormous amount of money to get on the ballot. With the Libertarian Party, when I was running it, we'd have to spend three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to get the presidential candidate on the ballot in all 50 states, which um, was difficult to meet that threshold. Typically, it was 48 states, something like that. We didn't bother with DC, uh, but it was um, a hurdle. And with limited resources off, off the bat, that's a huge chunk of money. That's like fighting your way onto the battlefield to then engage with the enemy. So it's um, it's an uphill battle. Ross Pro was um, the exception to that. Ross Pro ran in 1992 and 1996, initially as an independent candidate. And then 96, uh, he had formed the Reform Party by then and ran under that banner. Pro was an incredible businessman. And he also had a number of loyal former employees, retirees that literally went around the country and, uh, and RVs and petitioned nationwide for him. And it was, he kind of had this mobile army that went out and got the job done for him, which was extraordinary. And it showed kind of his personal character to develop such a following. So that was, um, an exception. And that was the, in modern history, one of the, uh, most successful third party races ever. Number two, back to why do we have so few independents and even third party candidates throughout history, media and debates today, the media, if you're, if you're running as an independent, as you're running as a third party candidate, you're pretty much written off there. They automatically assume you don't have the resources unless you're self-funding. If say Michael Bloomberg had decided to run as an independent, they would have, the media would have given him contention because, well, he's going to spend tens of millions of dollars on all the different networks to make that happen. And um, so media will pay attention to the candidates where they're going to get the money from. And we're talking really broadcast cable media. Um, even, even journalists, I would say, um, will be swayed by that. But more so, you'll see it on television where that's where you're going to get the daily feed of any kind of race. The second, uh, I, I put these together in the number two spot. So it's media and debates on the presidential level. And this does trickle down to the Senate. Uh, actually it trickles down to pretty much all levels of elected office. If you are independent or third party candidate, you're pretty much excluded from debates. The last time we had, um, 
an independent debate in the presidential election was Ross Perot in 1992. The, the only reason he was in the 92 debates was because George H.W. Bush decided, I think it would help my campaign if we included Ross Perot. Big mistake. He lost that year and lost mainly because of Ross Perot's fiscal responsibility message um, that went against really what his first term was all about. So that cost him, in my opinion, the election. And since then, nobody has risked including any type of third party um, in those national debates. And the national debates back before 1988. So the Commission on Presidential Debates, which controls our national debates, didn't come about until 1987, when the heads of the Republican and the Democrat parties got together and say, we want to control everything. Before that, from I think it was 1960 up until 88, the League of Women Voters was the ones who sponsored the national presidential debates. They were fair. Um, they did not allow the parties or the presidential campaigns to dictate the terms of the race, or excuse me, of the debates. And it was actually in the very first presidential debate by the CPD, Commission on Presidential Debates, it was George H.W. Bush against Michael Dukakis. League of Women Voters was sponsoring, they were paying for it, but it was a commission on presidential debates controlling it. And whenever uh, Dukakis and Bush campaigns got together, they signed a memorandum of understanding dictating which candidates would participate and the panelists that would be able to participate and ask questions within the debate. After that, the League of Women Voters pulled their support. Um, and I, I have the, the quote here I'd like to read you. Um, when they pulled their support, you know, objecting to the Dukakis and Bush campaigns controlling every aspect of the debate, they said the demands of the two campaigns would perpetrate a fraud on the American voter. And ever since then, they've had nothing to do with the debates. They're correct. When you allow the two parties to set the rules for everything, and that we're just talking about the presidential debates now, the American voters left in the dark about any other options. And, and there, when you ask a, a Republican or Democrat leader why that is, I, I've heard in the past when I was running the Libertarian Party, oh, well, we'll confuse the voter if, if we have more than two candidates on the ballot. They won't have a clear choice. They'll have to do too much research. It'll be too difficult. Um, and, you know, it's just going to mess up the entire system. When you walk down the grocery aisle, you have, what, 50, 100 choices of breakfast cereal to choose from. Miss America has no problem choosing one winner among 50 candidates. But the American voter is too stupid, too prone to confusion, to have three options, four, 10, 15 options put in front of them. That's not only ridiculous, but it's insulting. However, the Republican Democrats get away with this because they control everything. And going back to reason number one, ballot access, they do it. And that's the reasoning they use for controlling access to the ballot by only having an R or a D on the ballot with the party name. That's another thing. Whenever the ballot is printed, you will see that D or an R or written out Republican or Democrat 
Uh, in a lot of cases, they're at the top of the ticket. And that is government-sponsored party promotion. That is something that if we were just able to have nonpartisan ballots, I think that we have a tremendous shift in the power structure of our country and getting democracy back to its true intent. The, our republic is, is built on democratic principles where our elected leaders are there to vote and represent our beliefs being their congressional district, their state, and in the case of the president's entire United States, but let's go down to the, the House of Representatives level, those congressional districts. Each member of Congress is supposed to represent his people. It's not based upon his individual wisdom or his, his political biases or, or preferences. He's supposed to be representing the vote and the will of the people. How we have the system today, the political parties have more power than the voter. Once you're in office, the, the, it's the parties that sustain you. They get you reelected. That's why our reelection rates for incumbents are through the roof. Um, it has really little to do with the will of the voter. So back to that ballot, get rid of Republican or Democrat, D or R on the printing of the ballot. It'll change things quite a bit. So there's, there's so such a web of information and history regarding the, the influence, power, and impact of political parties that it's hard for the average voter to see past it. And also, really, um, it has the, the biggest reason and the third reason why we have so independents and third-party candidates selected gets down to what I call the wasted vote syndrome, where... Candidate C may best represent your values. You may think that's the best personality or the person with the greatest character that you could vote for on the ballot. But you know what? That person's not going to win because he's a third-party candidate. He's running as independent. He's not a major party candidate. Therefore, you don't want to throw away your vote, waste your vote on that you know, fringe candidate. And that's probably... I'd say the closer as to why these folks can't get elected. This is why we simply can't have a truly democratic system of government is because it's nearly doggone impossible for anybody but a major party candidate to get elected to office. So, um, but, you know, in a broader sense, and this is something that Wes, who's behind the camera, and I have been spending a lot of time on a different project. That we have a much bigger problem than the rules, ballot access, the media debates. And that's because we become so ingrained into what George Washington warned us of, that spirit of the party, that the natural inclination of most Americans that are politically aware is... If you hear an opposing viewpoint that comes, say you're on the left, you hear something that is representative of the right or Republicans or conservatives, you automatically reject it. You automatically reject it as racist or white supremacist or whatever the excuse is, you shut down and refuse to think on your own. You fall in line with 
your party, whether Republican or Democrat, based upon um, limited information. It's just kind of a naturally ingrained reaction that um, I, I say it's been kind of bred into us over hundreds of years now. Um, it, it's it that's the problem, and and I don't the the project again that we're working on is is trying to fight through this, and the show is kind of part of this. But how do you open up dialogue? with somebody that is traditionally on the other side of the fence. It's, um, it's not easy. Aside from, you know, you have personal relationships with people that may differ politically. How do you talk to somebody in a persuasive manner, not argumentative, but persuasive, so that you guys can sit down and have a debate where you both learn and explore an issue and walk away with, uh, um, let's just say, an expanded view? that will open up issues for change. It's, it's such, um, we're so polarized at this point in time that that answer evades me. Like, I, I don't know how to get through to people in a way that, um, doesn't come across as combative as, um, even if you address it in the most reasonable, logical way possible, they're still going to see it as combative. If you come, uh, an issue that we we're discussing this morning was um, student athletes, transgender athletes. So you have uh, specifically women in sports who uh, they sweat, they toil for years, they put in the hard work and the discipline uh, to to compete in whatever their sport is, you know, track and field. Uh, powerlifting, cycling, what have you. And then uh, a biological male decides he wants to transition and enter their sport and just crushes it, just dominates it. So that one issue alone, if you bring it up, you're automatically going to be polarized between, well, if you think that um, uh, a trans female should not be able to compete, you are transphobe. You're, you know, I've, I've even called, seen them called racist because they take issue with a biological male competing against biological females. And, it's, and there's no consideration served whatsoever on that female student athlete who has zero chance of competing against a biological male in the majority of cases. So it's, it's not even, you know, giving them the consideration. It is automatically a polarizing issue and that you, something must be wrong with you if you don't agree with that. Something, you know, you, again, throwing out the transphobe, the homophobe, all the, you know, um, ways to define you in a negative way um, and, and vice versa. You know, if, if you are in support of these biological females competing against other biological females, um, and somebody comes to you, it, it, you know, you have the opposite effect and you just automatically react in such a shut off way that, um, you're never going to come to a solution. So let's, let's explore that. And we're going to be exploring that issue and the solutions throughout however long this show goes. I hope you continue watching. I hope I didn't ramble too much. 
And I hope you tune in for the next episode. But in the meantime, if you could like the show, I'd really appreciate it. And if you could subscribe, then you'll get that alert for the next one. Thanks so much for joining us.